May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. I don't really know this Job fellow very well. Although we've heard about Job in the Old Testament reading, he's a bit of a puzzle to me. I think that's what I would say if a <clears throat> he was a contemporary and someone asked me, do you know Job? I can't tell you whether the writer intends this story as a history of a real person or as a parable about a literary figure. The text actually tells us very little about his background. There's no genealogy or mention of his parents. Perhaps that's the point. These details do not seem to be neglected, and the fact that they're left out somehow seems important. It's as if the text is telling us, don't worry about that, but focus on these things that are here. The text tells us that he came from the land of Uz, but scholars are divided as to where exactly Uz was. <laughs> Perhaps in Edom or Haran in northern Palestine. The consensus seems to be that he was not in Israel. There's no mention of God's covenant with Israel or the idea of a chosen people, yet his God apparently is the God of Israel. What the text does tell us seems very important, if not central to the, at the outset. Before calamity befalls Job and his family, the Hebrew word yeshar is used to describe him as upright. And the word tam is used to describe his wholeness. The text tells us that he had seven sons and three daughters. Both of these numbers have significance in ancient Near Eastern tradition, reinforcing this idea of completeness. We were also told that he had 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, indicating his relative wealth and, once again, his tam. What seems central to the theme of the story as it progresses and what makes Job so unusual is not his wholeness or his reputation for rectitude or that calamity visited him and took that well-being away from him. It is his response to calamity. His response seems almost superhuman. What does he have to do with us? Why should we be inspired by Job? After all, none of us are superhuman. The story is ancient and his faith and fortitude in the face of fortune's slings and arrows makes him seem somehow distant and remote from our everyday modern existence. Isn't he more of a concept than a real person? As I've already told you, I don't really know this Job very well. So is it reasonable to expect that ordinary modern mortals like us could be so steadfast in modeling faith? in the face of brutal and unrelenting suffering? Could Job possibly have been a real person enduring a real sea of troubles with 
real courage, real fortitude, and real faith. Why set the bar so high? What actual person in the face of cruel reality has ever modeled this sort of nobility? His parents would call him Iseldin, an Arabic word meaning trustworthy. This Iseldin Abelesh was born in February 1955 into the squalid conditions of the Jabalia refugee camp at the northern end of the Gaza Strip. The Abelesh family was among the first to be resettled in this one-half-mile square site, which would eventually come to house more than 200,000 people. He was the child of Palestinian parents and belonged to a large family, which included six brothers and three sisters, all of whom lived in a single room with no electricity, no running water, and of course, no privacy. Water was delivered only periodically by the United Nations. He remembered his parents as kind and generous people. He recalled that the surname Abelesh literally means the ones who give bread. It seems that he embraced his family's values and especially the value that they placed on each other as he assumed the mantle of responsibility associated with being the oldest son. It's hard to imagine anything good happening in a place like the Jabalia camp. But as a young boy, he discovered that one good thing. At age six, he was introduced to the United Nations schools. In Gaza, these consisted of small classrooms packed with 60 students each, three to a desk. He looked forward to his daily lessons as if they were a secret oasis hidden away in an otherwise bleak and hopeless desert. In this humble setting, he perceived an enormous opportunity for himself, his family, and his community. He later wrote that through his adolescence, he, quote, continued to wonder about the divide between Israelis and Palestinians and why it seemed as if it couldn't be repaired. He soon distinguished himself from his peers as an intelligent and disciplined young man. By the time he was 20, he was offered a scholarship to the University of Cairo. This would become the beginning of his nascent medical career. Iseldin later recalled, quote, I remember the moment I left Gaza for Cairo as if it was yesterday. I had been accepted into the medical school, and it was an emotional and triumphant day for all of us. My mother wanted to be the mother of a doctor as much as I wanted to follow my dream of joining the field of medicine. I felt drawn to the profession as profoundly as a person is attached to his name. My heart was pounding. My clothes were packed in a blue plastic suitcase. I waved to my family, who were weeping with joy from the steps of the Israeli bus that would take me and the other students through the Sinai into Egypt. He completed his undergraduate courses, medical school studies, and internship in Cairo in 1983. After this, he worked for a time for the Ministry of Health in Saudi Arabia, Growing up, he recalled expressions such as, quote, the unproductive tree should be cut. And 
He resolved to help couples with struggling with infertility and its stigma. In March 1988, on a scholarship from the Institute of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of London, he completed requirements to specialize in obstetrics and gynecology. Between 1997 and 2002, he was an OBGYN resident at the Soroka Medical Center in Beersheba, Israel. He was the first Palestinian doctor to obtain a staff position at an Israeli hospital, commuting from Gaza and treating Jewish patients. By this time, he was already an important figure in bridging Israeli and Palestinian relations. In 2003, he earned a master's degree in health policy on a scholarship from the Harvard School of Public Health because he perceived that he would need policy-making skills if he was going to make a difference in the lives of the Palestinian people. These professional successes were mirrored by the flourishing of his family and his personal life. He married his wife Nadia in 1987, and their first child, Bassan, was born a year later while the couple was in Saudi Arabia. By the end of 1990, he and his fledgling family had returned to Gaza, where the family would eventually include six daughters and two sons. He spent his days driving back and forth between his home in Jabalia and the hospital in Israel, where he provided care for Jewish couples. Dr. Abulesh was an upright man. Despite many hardships, and perhaps because of them, his life was complete. He was both Yashar and Tam. In the meantime, to paraphrase Job, calamity after going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it, eventually came to visit Zeldin, as it is wont to do. What was his response? In 1985, shortly after completing medical school, he lost his father. Of his father, he wrote, here was a man who had worked hard and suffered a lot. He was not familiar with rest. He used to work day and night to save money for my education and living expenses in Cairo. So I will always do three things that Muslims do for the dead share his knowledge and wisdom with others, pray for him, and give to charity in his good name. As hard as this may have been, he recognized his responsibility in this moment. Quote, my family saw me as a role model, and goodness knows we were all in agreement about the need to improve the lives of the Palestinians. Yet calamity was not yet done. In the summer of 2008, his wife Nadia was diagnosed with acute leukemia, and by September had succumbed to the illness. Once again, he was confronted with choices and how he would respond to suffering. Again, he saw his responsibility to be a physician to his patients, a symbol to his community, and most importantly, a role model for his eight motherless children. The specter of war was also always looming over Gaza. But on December 27, 2008, tensions between the Israeli Defense Forces and the Palestinian paramilitary forces based in Gaza 
had boiled over into what had later become known as the three-week Gaza War. During the conflict, Dr. Abulaish agreed to do daily interviews with an anchorman on Israeli television. At 4.30 in the afternoon, an Israeli tank rumbled down the street on which Zeldin and his brothers had built a five-story apartment building and where the entire Abulaish family lived. Zeldin and his children lived on the third floor. The tank stopped in front of this building and leveled the barrel of its gun at the third floor. Acting on faulty intelligence, the Israeli tank fired two shells into his daughter's bedroom. His daughters Basan, Aya, and Mayar, as well as a niece, Noor, were gone in an instant. His brother Nasser was injured by shrapnel but survived. Minutes after the attack, he contacted the television station where he was scheduled to be interviewed that afternoon. His stark words resonated. Quote, the invisible became visible. For one moment, it wasn't just the enemy, an enormous dark demon who is so easy and convenient to hate. There was one man, one story, one tragedy, and so much pain. This is what happened to me, to my daughters, to Gaza. This is my story. Again, Zeldin was confronted by a choice. What is the right response to the long shadow of calamity in our all too short lives? With these words, he staked out the territory of a choice he had made long ago and continued to claim. There was no curse, only commitment. He had dedicated his next steps to affirming the path he'd already traced. He later wrote, I have been straddling the line in the sand dividing Palestinians and Israelis for as long <clears throat> as I can remember. Even as a 14-year-old, when I worked for an Israeli farm family for the summer and discovered that they were as human as I was. In the days that followed, he established the Daughters for Life Foundation. Its aim was to establish scholarships for young women in Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria to pursue their studies at universities in Canada. In 2011, he wrote the book, I Shall Not Hate, a Gaza doctor's journey on the road to peace and human dignity, a written narrative of his loss and how he managed to build a bridge between Palestinians and Israelis with his example and the broken pieces of his life. Calamity forces us to consider one of the most important choices of all, that of our perspective. Some might look outside and see a chaotic world ruled by random events in which meaning and values seem elusive. In such a world, priority must be given to the here and now, to the tangible, to the preservation of our own lives and property. Indeed, had Iseldin chosen this perspective and the consequent responses that might logically follow, 
Who could blame him? However, an equally reasonable alternative view might be to see the miracle of our own lives, the lives of our children and the members of our community as components in a wisely ordered universe. In this sort of place, both meaning and purpose abound. It is not possible to conceive of such a place without God at its center. Iseldin, like Job, recognized that almost everything, our property, our position in the community, even our lives, were temporary objects. Loners, if you will. This perspective comes from faith in an ordered universe, in God. The only exception to this temporary status is, of course, our perspective and our trusting relationship with God. The time that we have is just a temporary gift, and it is always in short supply. There is a seriousness behind the actions of a person with this perspective that others, like Job's wife, cannot comprehend. <coughs> when calamity comes to visit a person prepared with this perspective, it comes as an expected guest, not as an apocalyptic invader. Remember Isildun, a real person who chose between these two perspectives and lived his life thoughtfully according to his choice. Isildun, Abulash, like Job, seemed to subscribe to this latter perspective. Isildun, like Job, made no curse. Once again, to borrow from the text of Job, in all this, he did not sin with his lips. Iseldin had made his choice. Iseldin chose generosity. He chose grace. He chose love. It's true. I don't know this Job very well, but I can understand him well by witnessing the actions of my contemporaries like Dr. Iseldin Abulash. That's actions that seem to come from an awareness of the same hopeful place, a kingdom of heaven which is not tethered to the nihilism of our mean temporal existence. Was Job a real person? Does it matter? What we as humans all share with the figure of Job is a common humanity, common suffering, and a choice. How will we respond? <laughs>